I'd just like to apologize to you, but paparazzi follow me everywhere. And, uh, you know, and you just walked into that path. So anyway, hey, my good friends Will and Shannon in the back. Hey, uh, I'm a sports enthusiast. I know you know that, a former coach. And one thing I love is a great comeback. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, unless you've got a dog in the hunt that's going to lose, you know, it's something romantic about it. I mean, you take the Chicago Cubs, down three games to one, and then coming back to win a dramatic game seven to win the first World Series title in 107 years. It's awesome. Or the Patriots just a few weeks ago, 25 points down in the third quarter, and they come from behind and win the first overtime victory in Super Bowl history. I mean, in sports, we have etched into our minds some great lines for these dramatic moments, such as, do you believe in miracles? Yes! Well, I believe in miracles, and I believe one of the greatest comebacks that I ever read and one of the greatest lines ever written and said was these three words, Lazarus, come forth. With three words, I mean, picture yourself if you were there. They didn't even want to remove the, the stone because of the stench that they anticipated. He had been in there three days, and yet what ended up happening was with three words, Jesus' power was magnified, and Lazarus, a dormant, lifeless body was resuscitated. Now I say resuscitated and not resurrected because he came back in the body that he went into the tomb with. As opposed to Jesus Christ when he was resurrected into a new glorious physical body and someday as Christ followers we will all be resurrected into a glorious new body as well. But talk about the odds being against it. But Jesus' power walked around with Lazarus and testified through him during Lazarus' entire lifetime up until today, and that testimony speaks forever. In both instances, victory was snatched from the jaws of defeat, and Jesus was magnified for all time. Today, some of you may be in marriages that are dormant, lifeless, like Lazarus, and in need of resuscitation. Others may have experienced the death of a spouse or the death of a marriage and in some sorts are in need of a resurrection. Through the same power of Jesus Christ, your testimony can be his testimony and again can be carried out to all the end of the ages. I realize this is a sensitive, delicate matter that I'm speaking about today and it requires empathy. And I want you to know that today, if your marriage is struggling, if you're on life support, in need of intensive care, if you've in separation, gone through divorce or remarriage, I want you to know that I can empathize. Most of you know this already, but if you don't know, I have walked that road and traveled that road. And that's why Pastor Mike asked me to speak today. Because when I came and interviewed for this position, or actually before I even came, and I talked to the elders, here's one of the things that I said. I hope my it can be transparent enough to allow other people in our church to be transparent with them, their it. Because everybody has their it. Everyone has an it. Mine is a scarlet letter of divorce. But again, by being transparent, I hope that we won't come in on a Sunday morning and, hey, how you doing, Mike? Oh, I'm doing great, Jay. How you doing? I'm doing great, too. And we have this facade that doesn't allow us to open up, to be ministered to, and does not allow us to use our it to minister to others who may be walking through a very similar journey that you're walking through now. See, at Southwinds, we really believe that no perfect people are allowed, and it begins with yours truly right here. I've shared my details and some of the separation, divorce, and remarriage, and I'm not going to do that today. What I hope to do instead is hope that you will glean from it life lessons, teachable moments, practical applications that will help you wherever you are currently this morning. For those of you in healthy marriages, let me first and foremost say, thank God. I stated back then, I would not want my worst enemy to go through what I went through during that dark time. But I also want to tell you this. Paul says this, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. See, at one time I thought it couldn't happen to me. I don't mean to discourage you by that statement, but on the contrary, my hope is what I'll share today will help further divorce-proof your marriage. And as a pastor, I want you to know I'm committed to helping you with every eventuality that could occur in your lifetime. 
So the goal of this marriage makeover is threefold. First, to resuscitate a troubled marriage. Second, to resurrect the broken lives that have been left behind. And third, to promote measures that will help ensure that healthy marriages stay that way till death do us part. For all of us, I hope we're encouraged by words such as in Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We all know the statistics. About half of all marriages will end in divorce. The Washington Post posted an article not too long ago that said we shouldn't even talk about wedlock. We should talk about wed leases. And they were serious. They weren't joking when they said this. They said people should enter into an agreement, whether it be a one-year, three-year, or five-year term, whatever you would agree upon. And at the end of that term, then you would determine whether you wanted to renew the lease or just walk away from it, like a vacation property, like an automobile. They greatly underestimated the pain and suffering that occurs when two people that were brought together are no longer one. It has an effect on children. We know that to be true. Some respected publications have said children hurt emotionally and time didn't necessarily heal their wounds. At times, time uh, strengthened their wounds. I witnessed something unique when I was at Harvard. I was there for seven years, as many of you may know. I was a recruiting coordinator for the football program. I traveled across the country and signed young men from everywhere. And uh, I wasn't looking for this, but at the same point in time, it hit me. You know, all the demographic statistics, what would be a predictor to allow a young man to get to the point where he could enter such an elite institution? It wasn't socioeconomic, it wasn't race, it wasn't ethnicity, all these types of things, but here's one thing that stood out and jumped out to me very strongly. For all the young men that I signed, only one came from a single parent household. Every other young man in seven years came from a home where parents were intact, where mother and father were there. So don't tell me that doesn't have an impact on the performance of your children. Another research project uh, that was founded uh, by the Center of Marriage and Families in New York said that spiritually, divorce is devastating. Found that kids raised in happy, intact marriages were twice as likely to be involved in church than later in life. Of the, also, relationally, it affects their views on marriage, and we now know that those that have come from broken homes are more than likely going to be a higher percentage to be divorced themselves. We know it affects adults, and what you may not know is that today, women divorce men at a two-to-one rate where it used to be the other way around. And yet, statistically, Harvard, in a study, said that women with minor children experienced a 73% drop in their standard of living in the first year after divorce. And with regard to emotional pain, there is no pain like divorce. The Holman Stress Scale uh, measures how much stress you can handle in one year. And some of the things it gives a point value to are positive things, what you would think would be happy things such as birthdays. But I want you to know that it says if you have 300 points or more, you are very much headed towards either a mental, physical, or emotional breakdown. The highest value given in this scale for a single event is 100 points, and it's divorce. See, when God said, the two shall become one, he never intended them to come apart. And when you think about coming apart, I don't want you to think of something that's kind of seamless, that comes apart nice and easy. When the two become one flesh, and they are tore apart, it's ripping the flesh. I said during the time of my life that I would rather have some guy beat me physically up than to suffer the internal hemorrhaging that I was experiencing. And I want you to know that there's reminders for the rest of your life. The day that I was called to go into court for a legal separation was February 14th. The day that I received papers asking for the divorce was December 2nd. That's my birthday, by the way. So this did not, this is not something that uh, I want to say is based upon my ex-wife. She had no control over those dates. But I want you to know there's reminders that Satan will always use to try to tell you you're not worthy. And there are always lies. See, there's peaks and valleys in a marriage, and we know that to be the case. And if you're in a valley today, I want to tell you this. Just because your marriage may not have started right, or maybe isn't currently right, does not mean that it cannot end right. 
my marriage with Kim didn't exactly get off to an illustrious start. Let me just tell you humorously what happened. We got married on a Saturday, like a lot of people, and the next day we came back to teach our Sunday school class that we had. We had a Bible study class of adults of a large group of people that came every Sunday, and it was even larger this day because we had parents and family members and stuff, people like that that were here for the wedding. And I said something, and you know, sometimes when it's here, it just doesn't come out here the way you had intended, you know? And here's what I said. I said, I want you to know I saw Kim do something in that hotel room I've never seen done before. Oh, I was grasping at the words to bring the words back in. Just pulling them, and they were escaping me. And I had to explain. They responded like you, I think a little bit louder. When they got up off the floor, um, then I explained. I said, I meant she made the bed. You know, who makes the bed in a hotel room? She came to my defense by saying this. I was bored. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just what every groom wants his bride to say after their wedding night is she got bored in the hotel room. So, oh my goodness. So, oh, I hope she doesn't help me in the future. And uh, Pastor Mike actually suggested maybe she come up and say a word in today's message. No way. Anyway, but uh, it gets better. I, I don't have time for it, but remind me to tell you someday about the honeymoon. That'd be another story, okay? But I also want you to know, if your marriage is soaring long and doing great and you're looking on top of a mountaintop, that's wonderful. But God always wants to take us where, from where we're at, where we're comfortable, to where he wants us to be, and that's another mountaintop. But to go to that mountaintop, what do we have to do? We gotta go through a valley to get there. So I wanna encourage you and let you know that Though when he takes us to that new mountaintop, there'll be a better view. There'll be a higher altitude. And to make it to that summit, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can look at those that have gone before us. We can look for guides. We can see it in scripture. I love the quote by someone that said, life is to be learned backwards and then lived forwards. I truly subscribe to that philosophy. Metaphorically, if repairing your marriage might seem the equivalent to scaling Mount Everest. But let me assure you, it can be done. Now here, a thousand people a year attempt to scale Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, and half are successful. Where have we heard that statistic before? Okay. It's 29,035 feet in elevation. To give you a scale, we're close, people. We're at 52. So we're just a smidgen short of that. Now, it actually grows each year. I don't know if you know this, but it's two tectonic plates that are pushing against each other, and it actually grows by a quarter of an inch each year. It becomes more challenging. There's a huge cost to scaling Mount Everest, and here's the price you'll pay for attempting it. First of all, you'll burn about 10,000 calories a day, and twice that as you get closer to the summit. Secondly, oxygen becomes a rarity. As you get closer to the summit, you'll breathe in 66% less oxygen than we're breathing in at this moment. Third, wind gusts can go up to 175 miles per hour. Temperatures range from 80 degrees below zero to 100 degrees above zero. Since Sir Edmund Hillary first scaled Mount Everest on May 29, 1953, 7,626 people have also done so. But here's the interesting statistic. Only two have done so by themselves. Solo climbs. Healing a marriage is never easy, but like climbing Mount Everest, it's going to take both parties. It's going to take husband and wife. An ancient sage once said, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. But before you even leave base camp, before you even trek out towards the mountain, you'll want to have the essentials with you. And you know, the most important thing a climber needs is visibility. They don't even step foot outside unless they can see where they're going. And that rings true in Scripture. In Proverbs, we read this. Where there is no vision, the people perish. In a marriage, when there's no vision, the marriage perishes. There's no resuscitation. There's only resurrection. To resuscitate a marriage, the first thing we need to do is we need to be able to refresh our vision. Vagueness clouds vision. We want to be clear. In clarity, a vision entails that we understand our purpose and our calling. See, our passions can change. Maybe you have a passion of mountain climbing and later you don't. 
Our passions change, but our purpose, our mission, it never changes. It remains the same, same, it remains fixed. And here it is, in the simplicity, it's this. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We are to glorify God with our existence. And number two, we are to mature into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. We read in 2 Corinthians, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. See, it's not so much about us marrying the right person as it is about us becoming the right person. And for us to enjoy the verse that we all like to quote, Romans 8, 28, and all things work together for the good to those who love God and what? Are called according to his purpose. It's about fulfilling our purpose. It's about accepting our calling. And our calling is to take people with us on the journey, and that begins with our spouse. God wants to work in and through you so you can internally change and then become an external agent of change. Marriage is a calling. Your marriage isn't yours. Scripture is clear, and I'm going to share one later that says it is a gift from God, and it comes with responsibilities. It comes with accountability, and you will be called to account. And you won't be asked, well, what did your spouse do? You'll be asked, what did you do? How did you take care of your responsibilities in that relationship? And what makes us think, if we're not a good steward, that God would entrust us with another marriage if we didn't take care of the first gift? Maybe that's why second marriages divorce at a higher rate than first, and third marriages divorce at a higher rate than second. But I want you to know there's encouragement for the calling. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. We need him. We can't do it without him. Our homes are to be Christ-centered. They're to be spirit-led. And let me assure you, if your vertical isn't right, your horizontal's not going to be right either. We need to see our marriages through God's eyes. We need to have his vision. And I'm going to give you three passages to jot down. I'm sure Pastor Mike's covered them in previous weeks. But look at these on your own later. You need to assume and study what your responsibilities are. 1 Peter 3. 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 5. I know he's covered that uh, in the love and respect portion of what he's shared. See, our marriages should do a number of things. One, they should lead others to Christ. Our marriages should testify. People should want what we have. Secondly, our marriages, our lives should be vehicles that we ask God to use in order to bless and meet the needs of our spouse. Now we come to that relationship not out of weakness. We're to come to that relationship in security. Security in the Heavenly Father that He's going to meet our needs so I don't necessarily need my spouse to meet all of them and think my spouse should meet all of them because if I think my spouse is going to meet all of them, we put unrealistic expectations into that relationship. They are not going to meet all your needs. If they could meet all your needs, they'd be God. Pastor Mike always says, you're not God. There's only one God. I'm not God. We come out of strength. We come as to what we can give. You know that Jerry Maguire line? The one that throbs the heart at the end? You complete me. That's a bunch of bull. I don't... (laughs) I don't know if you can say bull from the pulpit, but I just said bull from the pulpit, and I continue to say bull from the pulpit, but it's not about that. Our marriage is not to make us happy. Our marriage is supposed to be vehicles where we can serve the other person. You know, the love chapter is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's quoted at marriage after marriage after marriage, and one of the things, and part of this as it's describing love is this. It's not to be self-seeking. It's not to be self-seeking. We need to rely on God and understand that he's going to be unpredictable with his MO. He's going to meet our needs in different timing and in different ways. We can envision where we want to go, but as we set out on that course, our strategy must be that we keep our eyes on the target. I just met with somebody earlier this week, and they confirmed it without me even bringing it up. They described their relationship and the struggle that they were going through, and they said, we lost sight. I mean, what an affirmation of what God wants me to share with you today. We lost sight. See, eyes trigger thoughts, and thoughts precede actions. Look at David. 
David's on the roof. He looks at Bathsheba bathing. He should have averted his eyes, but instead the thoughts triggered an action. The action was adultery, which led to a pregnancy, which led to murdering her husband so he could have Bathsheba for himself. Proverbs, I love this verse. A prudent person sees trouble coming and ducks. A simpleton walks in blindly and is clobbered. Scripture is clear. We should always be looking upward and forward, never looking back. We read in Luke. Jesus replied, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. If you're going to move towards healing, you've got to learn to forgive. In our relationship with our spouse, there's got to be a statute of limitations. We can't keep rehashing the same stuff over and over again and hope that that somehow is going to be productive to our relationship. I got an illustration of former head coach that I worked under when I was an assistant coach. And on Saturdays, the young men are going to make errors and, you know, head coach may get upset and that's understandable. There's a lot of testosterone and emotions involved in the game, not just on the field, but on the sidelines and in the press box. And so you'll correct that error. Then you go in the next day on film and what do you do? You watch the film and he'd get upset again. He'd relive it. Well, it didn't end there. See, what college teams do and pro teams do is they cut up all their film from the year and they splice it together into this one play and you'll see them all together, one after another, so you can better assess that play and see what you want to do about that play in the future. So we'd look at these cut-ups in the off-season he'd see the same error and you know where I'm going, he'd get upset again. He'd relive it as if it had just happened. Not over yet. The next year when you go to play that opponent, what is customary is one of the things you do is you look at last year's film to look at what you did and what they did to you. And again, the same thing. You've got to clean the slate. Again, that love chapter says this, love keeps no record of wrongs. We need to concentrate on the future because that's the only thing we can do something about. We read in Proverbs, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. In 1952, a young woman um, named uh, Florence Chadwick stepped foot off of Catalina Island and to swim the Pacific Ocean to mainland California. Now, she was already the first woman ever to swim the English Channel in both directions, one time and then the other direction another time. It was foggy and chilly that day as she set out and she swam for 15 hours when she said, I'm done, it's over with. She couldn't even see the boats that were with her. Her mom, however, yelled down to her, keep going, you can make it. And she continued to push through until she got to the point that she was emotionally and physically exhausted and stopped swimming. They pulled her out of the water and when she got on the boat, she realized she was less than half a mile away. At a press conference the next day, she said, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen land, I would have made it. In the fog of our lives, we've got to remember, we live by faith, not by sight. Deuteronomy says if they had any sense at all, they'd know this. They would see what's coming down the road. We've got to anticipate in order to eliminate. We've got to be able to have an awareness of potential problems. And there's three sources of fog in our lives. And they exist no matter what we're talking about. The first one and foremost is ourselves. I love the verse in Genesis that says this, I being in the way the Lord led me. How many times are we our own worst enemies? I mean, I've spent, I can't tell you how many times I've prayed, Lord, protect me from myself. Secondly, my adult daughter was at a party recently in Manhattan, Christmas party I think it was, and she said, Dad, I don't understand it. The woman that hosted this party, she has this beautiful high-rise apartment. She has a fantastic husband, beautiful kids, successful businesswoman, all the money you could ever spend in a couple of lifetimes, and she's a miserable person. And I said, well, it's just the latest example of fog. What the world promises will never satisfy, never has, and never will. Third and finally, Satan and the enemy in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. We've got to understand how the adversary acts. We've got to understand his modus operandi. 
We know in John 10, 10, Jesus said the thief, that Satan, came to steal, to deceive, and to destroy. And we must not be surprised that if vision is so important, if our focus is so important, then the battlefield is going to be the mind. And his weapons are going to be psychological to try to tear us down. Always has been that way and always will be. Blinders has a dual meaning in the English language. In one context, it's a positive. It means you have something that's causing you to focus straight ahead on the goal and have your eyes on the target. The way that I'm choosing to use it today is the opposite meaning, which is something that impairs our vision. We've got to be able to see in order to avoid. I call them, these preventive measures, the three I's. First, idleness. Scripture's clear, for all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. If we want our marriages to grow, we're going to have to invest. We're going to have to work at it. As a coach, I've never seen anything improve that did not require exertion. Number two, isolation. We need community. Again, the Bible offers this wisdom. As iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. We have a group of women in the church that are training for a half marathon. Anybody in here? There's one. Okay. There's a couple of them that are in here. They're training for a half marathon, but I guarantee you they train together because they can keep each other accountable, because they can motivate each other, and because they can encourage one another to achieve that goal. And we need that also spiritually. That's one of the reasons why you're here on Sunday mornings. First and foremost, to worship the Heavenly Father. But there's something that's strong about community in a spiritual growth. We need it in small groups as well. And then last thing that can trip us up is inappropriate boundaries. Now, I want you to know one of the things that I do is I do not have my emails from work. I'll email you back. It may take a day or two. If it doesn't happen quickly, it probably means I'm not in the office. I do not forward my emails to my cell phone. When I'm with my wife, I protect that boundary and make sure that I keep my mind where my body is. Second thing related to the inappropriate boundaries is our relationship with the opposite sex. I have boundaries that are in place of things that I will not do to not put myself in jeopardy, okay? And one of the things that I would say, groups are fine, but one-on-one, men need to have friendships with men, women need to have friendships with women. This verse says this in Proverbs, I noticed a youth who had no sense. He was going in the direction of her house. This is what I would contend. Stay out of that neighborhood. If you're doing well in these areas, I congratulate you, but also remind you that it's never over. I mean, look at Jesus when he was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted. In Luke chapter 4, verse 13, it says this. He left him until the next opportunity came. There's going to be another opportunity where you can stumble and fall. There always will be the next opportunity. Derek was a young man that was on my team. In fact, he was on my last team that I coached. But Derek transferred from the University of Arkansas to our team, and shortly after he transferred, he became very familiar with a phrase that I would say over and over and over again with these young men. It's this. We are all one bad decision away from blowing it all. Ironically, shortly after he arrived, the head coach of the University of Arkansas was caught in a moral failure, and uh, thankfully his marriage uh, did not uh, break, but he did lose his job and he did lose his reputation. And I got a text the night it became national news and public from Derek, and I'll always remember it. It said, Coach, we are all one bad decision away from blowing it all. And I thought, Great. It's ingrained. He's got it. Well, a few months after I left uh, the university and retired from coaching, I got notified that Derek had been dismissed from the university on drug-related charges. I never saw that in Derek. I thought I'd be able to perceive those things, and I was with him constantly. A few months after that, his mom called me to let me know that Derek was in jail that he had been breaking in with another friend into uh, garages, stealing things and selling it to support his addiction to heroin. She asked me to write the judge, and I did, and I said, hey, here's the Derek that I knew. Here's the Derek that's present today. 
And the one thing that I see that's made the difference, unfortunately, in this downward spiral has been the drugs. And I can't help but believe that if Derek has some accountability, takes responsibility, and there's measures put in place to release him from that addiction, that the old Derek will return that should be very productive and wants to help many people. He wanted to get in coaching himself. Well, he was released after six months, and I asked his mom, I said, have him give me a call, and I never heard from Derek. I thought he was probably embarrassed and so forth, but I heard through the grapevine he was doing great. He made his one-year probationary period. He was very um, uh, disciplined with the things that he needed to do. I found out uh, a year ago, I should say, Derek called me while I was over in my office over here. It's the first time we talked. He'd been clean for two and a half years. I told him how proud I was of him. We talked about Jesus and and he loved Jesus Christ. It was very clear and evident that he had submitted, had surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. We talked about uh, deterrence. We talked about celebrate recovery. He was going to fellowship of Christian athletes on a weekly basis. He was with one of my former assistant coaches, and they were going to local jails and prisons where he could give testimony on his story. In fact, he was halfway through writing a book about his journey. He was turning it into a positive. Three weeks later... I got a call from another assistant coach and he told me that Derek had died of a heroin overdose. And uh, it still hurts. Uh, I'm thankful that Derek told me he loved me. I told him that I loved him and, and was proud of him. I'm thankful that I'll be able to see Derek again. I was able to speak with mom, speak with dad. One of my coaches spoke at the funeral and so forth. And um, I can't help but share with you today that we are all one bad decision away from blowing it all. That's why Celebrate Recovery has a mantra that says, just keep coming back. And I believe in that. See, we're to be looking upward. If, if Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, then we are to look to him, which means we are to turn and trust in him. Warren Wearsby said, true Bible faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. It's very important who we look to, and I'll tell you this, uh, this story. I learned this skydiving. Again, some of you know that that was one of my passions. I got 23 jumps in one year, and my wife had not heard this story until the 8 o'clock service this morning. I had kept it from her, but my first jump, my first jump after I cleared student status, this is when they tell you your death is your responsibility now. Um, we went up, and at 10,000 feet, a dual tandem jumpers jumped out, and we went up to 12,000 feet, and there was one other guy with me. He had one more jump than me. He's 25 years of age. I should have known that that was a problem right off the bat. And I said, why don't you be our spotter? Well, the spotter is the person that determines, first of all, you're upwind, and secondly, that there's no clouds that you will drop through. And it was a pretty cloudy day, so he said, great. And he would do that. He seemed very confident at 12,000 feet. He said, looks good. Open the door. He jumps out. I dive out immediately into a huge cloud. Now, the reason why you don't want to go through a cloud is you don't want to end up being a bug on a plane's windshield, okay? So I got through the cloud, and when I could see the ground, what I could see was we were also downwind, the opposite where we're supposed to be. So there's a technique, and you may have seen it in movies, where you can attempt to fly across the sky, but it's much harder to do into a headwind than having the wind behind you. So I tried the best I could. I was on the wrong side of the highway, in fact, trying to get back to our drop zone area and get myself in position to deploy my chute. Eventually, I got to the altitude that I needed to deploy my chute, and I thought, okay, I'll deploy it, and I'll see if I can steer again back into the headwind and try to get myself into where I need to be. At that point in time, and maybe because I rushed it, the pilot chute, this is a small little parachute that comes out first, and it helps your main chute to become fully deployed and to deploy quickly. What it had tangled around my main chute. And so I looked up at it, and the thing that you have to determine is three things. Is it square, is it steerable, and is it stable? Well, it looked like, it wasn't pretty, but it looked like I was going to be okay. And you have to make this determination by 1,500 feet because then you get into the point where if you cut and release and go to a free fall, it can be a little bit hazardous to your health. <laughs> At 1,300 feet, 1,300 feet, my chute begins to collapse. At 1,200 feet, I go back into a free fall because the only thing I do is cut and release my main chute and go to my reserve. Well, I don't want to leave you in suspense I survived. 
In fact, I'm here with you today. A little scuffed up and so forth, and Kim looked at me a little funny as I saw her after the first service too, but it's important who you look up to. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. To you, I lift up my eyes. At times, it may seem like we're never going to arrive. I don't think that mountain climbers probably see the peak until the very last part of their journey. They walk by faith, not by sight, and we need to as well. There are currently 1,500 dating sites or matchmaking organizations in existence today. Andy Stanley said this, falling in love requires a pulse. Staying in love requires a plan. And I'm going to give you a two-step plan. As successful, as much of a guarantee as you'll ever get on how to divorce-proof your marriage. And here it is. Number one, only one out of 40 which is 2.5% of marriages who regularly attend church and in divorce. Number two, only one out of 400, that's 0.25%. In other words, you have a 99.75% chance of staying married if you do what I'm about ready to tell you to do. Read the Bible and pray together regularly. Kim and I did not know the stats, but we knew how important it was. Before we were ever married, we were on the phone and we did devotionals together every day. When I'd be out here and she was on the East Coast, I'd be out here recruiting in California. She'd call me at 2.33 o'clock in the morning here. We'd do a devotional. Now at times she's up 2.33, 3.30 in the morning to go to work. She wakes me up. We do a devotional before she leaves. This is how important it is. I want you to also know that singleness is a calling as well. Paul said this, God gives the gift of the single life to some, the gift of the married life to others. I have a friend, I've known him for almost 40 years, tremendous Christian brother, strong Christ follower, loves the Lord, never been married, and I don't think he ever will be. He's 65 years of age now, and he adheres to Matthew 19, 12. Some people are spiritually called not to marry, and the power of the kingdom of God in their life enables them to go unmarried. Some are widows and widowers. I'm sure we're representing everything here this morning. And that may be a permanent singleness or it may be a temporary singleness. Others have been divorced. Maybe that's going to be a permanent singleness. Maybe that's going to be temporary in just a season. Although I'm frequently asked about biblical grounds for divorce, I'm asked about what scripture says in separation, reconciliation, remarriage, and these types of things, I want you to know in the little bit of time that I have this morning, there's no way that I could cover all that material. So Pastor Chris Martinez had a good idea, and I wrote a lot of that information down. I gave it to him, and if you're in a, a sermon series curriculum that you're using in your small group, he will have that included so you'll have more time to unpack that in your small group. If not, and you'd like some of that information, you can email me, give me a call, and I'd be happy to get that information to you. What I want you to know in short is biblical divorce is permitted on the three A's, three grounds, adultery, abandonment, and abuse. But just because vows are broken does not mean you should divorce necessarily. The key is the person that was responsible for breaking the vows, what's their heart? about? Are they repentant? Do they have a soft, pliable heart? If so, then every effort should be made to reconcile that marriage. If, on the other hand, they're not repentant, they're hard-hearted, they're not contrite, there's no brokenness, then more than likely the only, divorce is the only option. If you've gone through divorce, I want you to know that there's some steps in healing, some things that I've learned that I want to share with you today as you grieve that loss and prepare for God to use you more. First, accept reality. Okay, I learned this from a person. It was the best piece of advice I was given. I met this person in fleeting. He said, don't be like me. I spent a year of my life wishing I wasn't where I was. You know, we want vindication at times. We want justification. We wallow in self-pity, and it's all pride. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up in due time. It is what it is. Trust him. Number two, cry out to God. I certainly did this. 
David said, my voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and he will hear me. And if David, a man after God's own heart, is going to suffer and need to cry out, we all are going to have experiences in our lifetime where we're going to need to cry out as well. I can remember times where I didn't realize I was doing it, but groans and moans were coming from me that I did not understand. We don't want to mask the pain. We want to go to the source of the healing. We don't want to turn to things that are Novocaine like sex and drugs and alcohol and so forth. It doesn't go away. It just comes back and we feel even worse about ourselves when we do those things. Number three, ask the right questions. It's not, why me, Lord? It's not, how long is this going to continue? How long am I going to feel this way? It's this. What do you want me to learn from this experience? It's how can I glorify you, God, in this circumstance? When we handle it the right way, there's purpose in the pain. Glorifying God, maturing like Christ. When we don't, it's just pain. We want to get it right the first time, at least I did. And I did understand this. You do have some input on the, length, on the duration the frequency, and the intensity of the suffering that you're going to go through. Number four, get proper food, rest, exercise. I exercised quite a bit. That was helpful. Uh, I lost a lot of weight. I wasn't trying to. I didn't sleep for about four months. I slept for about an hour, hour and a half a night. If it went any further, I needed to probably get medical help. And that's the next point, get help. Every professional athlete has a personal trainer. We all need a coach. Tom Landry, Hall of Fame coach of the Dallas Cowboys, said this. He said, a coach helps people get to where they want to go by doing the things they don't want to do in order to get there. We need wise Christian counsel. In Psalms, we hear the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's somebody that has reverence for the Heavenly Father. It's somebody that's going to speak truth and love into your life, not somebody that's going to tell you what you want to hear. And I will say this in counseling. In all likelihood, unless both parties in a relationship are involved in the counseling, it dramatically reduces the chances of that marriage being healed and reconciled. Number six, forgive. This is for you. It's for healing. You will not be prepared for a future relationship until you learn how to forgive. Number seven, realize that God never wastes a hurt. I must have read the 25th chapter of A Purpose Driven Life 12 times in the first 12 days as things set out in my life in this dark time. And that chapter is called Transformed by Trouble. And what I read in that chapter was God uses everything, including it even said the word divorce. And that gave me hope because I thought I could never be used of God in a positive way ever again. I read this verse, and this became a key verse during the time of my healing. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father in compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Before I ever got into full-time ministry, I spent a lot of time. God kept bringing people in my path that I could counsel, individually, as a couple, or sometimes I'd speak to a group. Number eight, don't rush the process, but don't lengthen it either. Our training, it says in Psalms, is in his hands. It's in his hands, and he's never wrong. If we rush it, we miss out on the blessings and the understanding that he will provide. You see, we need to understand that we can depend on him, because when we learn that we can depend on him, we also know that we're going to have instances in life after this where we're going to have to depend on him as well. But we can see that track record and we can take strength from it. And not only do we take strength from it, our spouse can and our children can and everybody that looks into our lives can see that dependability. During the most adverse times of life, that's when we grow spiritually. That's when I grew the most. During times of prosperity, we rarely do. Lastly, if there is going to be a future relationship, there must be a mutual faith commitment. Paul says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. If I could give you one verse, one verse 
that would stand out into the priority of how to live your life, it would be Matthew 6.33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be covered as well. You see, I wasn't looking for Kim when I found Kim and met Kim. I was running after the Lord, chasing after the Lord with all my heart. And I just happened to look over my shoulder and there was a young woman running alongside me doing the same thing. Ecclesiastes said a cord of three strands is rarely broken. God hates divorce, it says in Malachi 2.16, but I want you to know the Bible is clear that God loves the divorced person. Why? Because God himself is divorced and we are all divorcees. The prophets used to describe God's relationship to Israel as that of marriage. God made a covenant with Israel because he loved her and they took a vow. Ezekiel says, I promised you my love and entered the covenant of marriage with you. I, God, the master, gave my word. You became mine. God would provide for her, care for her, and love her. She was to love God in return. But God's people were unfaithful to him. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll frequently read about the idolatry. The idolatry is another term for adultery. It leads to one of the most amazing and heart-wrenching statements in all of Scripture. This is God speaking. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. You know why God hates divorce? Because he's been through it. But he also started the first divorce recovery program at a place called Calvary. And the price for this course was one blood-stained cross. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all for you and I. When it comes to this kind of divorce, we've all been on the wrong side of it. If we've ever put anything above God, it's idolatry, and that means that we're adulterers. But as Christ's followers, we can rest assured with this statement. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to know there's no condemnation at Southwinds as well. Southwinds is a place of resuscitation and resurrection. It's a place of hope. If your marriage is suffering, if you're separated, if you've been through divorce, if you've been remarried, I want you to know that you're not a second-class citizen at Southwinds. You're loved, and you've come to the right place. We're a church People of brothers and sisters who encourage one another, support one another, and minister to one another. Some of the ways that we do that are through some of our care groups, and CARE stands for Connect, Assist, Restore, and Encourage. Divorce care, which again, Kim and I facilitate. Grief share for those that have suffered loss. Living grace for women who are either dealing with or are ministering to people that are dealing with anxiety and depression. And celebrate recovery because everybody has a hurt, a habit, or a hang-up. Also, I want you to know we put together something especially for this Sunday. And it's out in the display rack. It could be for you. It could be for somebody that um, you know. Pastor Chris Martinez is going to have it out on his table too. And it's a counseling referral guide of Christian counselors all throughout our region that you can make an appointment with that will help you with every issue that you're dealing with. And please also know if there's anything that I can ever do, I certainly want to make myself available. The Victorious Christian Life is a series of new beginnings. And I think it would be best illustrated by this newspaper. Anybody still get one of these? <laughs> I said, my brother used to have one of these, and that meant everybody had a paper route. You know, if he had a paper route. But used to come like this, and to get thrown in our yard, or in our driveway, or sidewalk, or maybe somewhere in the block close to our, our home. But this is an old school newspaper. It's a USA Today. It's the most recent one. It's from this past, uh, this weekend. It has something about health care. I don't know if anybody heard anything about that or not. But anyway, but this newspaper has a front page for people that like to read. It also has... Uh, Comics you can see for people who can't read, and uh, 
Then it has also uh, editorials for people who can't think. So anyway, so I started, I started thinking about this a little bit more, and I said, you know, I said, it, uh, it really is indicative to life, though. I mean, they even have a life section in here as well. And so it has life, it has recreation, it has travel, it has politics and business and so forth. And I don't know what your situation might be today, but I want you to know if it's divorce and you feel this tearing that you've been through, again, I can empathize. If it's something in your relationship as husband and wife, uh, once again, I can empathize. We go through those, some of those types of things. It may be something with your children that's causing some stress in your life. It may not be related to your marriage, but it has an effect on it as well. It could be things that you experience in your home. You could, uh, it could be things such as the finances. It could be things that you go through, for instance, that are going to be involved in things such as uh, your job. Uh, it can also be things such as your Oh, it can be a number of types of things. It can be in-laws, do I dare say that, that are tearing against us as well too. Why is it tearing harder when it's in-laws that I'm talking about? <laughs> so, once again, Kim came to an earlier service. So, but these things can squeeze against us and they pressure us from all sorts and all sides until we hardly don't recognize ourselves any longer. What's left is really just a shell of what we once were. But I want you to know, as Psalm says, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. And it's just an illusion. Because, uh, it, uh, I was asked after the last service how I did that. Perfectly, I thought, but... Uh, <laughs> Now, there's three ways you do it. Illusion, sleight of hand, or the way I choose to do it, spiritual gift. <laughs> so, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for each and every person here. I thank you for creating the institution of marriage. Father, we thank you that we have you to draw upon for our strength, whether we walk alone, whether we walk together on this path. Father, help us to fill, fulfill our purpose Fill our calling to please you. Help us to know that we can depend upon you. Father, we pray for healing of those that need it. We pray for testimony that will bring others to Christ. I thank you for the opportunity we have to give today of this offering. Father, we've learned that you can do more with our 90% than we can do with our 100%. And so bless the giver as you promised to do. And we know once again, this is an opportunity to live by faith, not by sight. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <laughs>